Well, my, my wife mentioned that my daughter is graduating, uh, and so in our household, there's a lot of changes taking place and about to take place. If you're Facebook friends with us, you might have seen that my daughter, you might have seen the picture of my daughter who went to prom yesterday, and uh, she kept waiting for me to cry, and I did not. <laughs> but I have, neither, neither did Heather, and I have no idea what the next few months will hold. Um, we're still praying and, and seeking wisdom and, and making decisions, uh, but changes are happening, and it seems to be the theme for the, most of us in our life, right? Like, we have had, we've lived in a life of changes, and we know that there are changes that are still coming up. I mean, take COVID and take the political things that are taking place, take the cultural shifts that are taking place out of the equation. Life is full of changes without all that. You add that, it becomes far greater. I mean, whether it's the health of a loved one that you're not so sure how that's going to change your life, and you pursue and navigate the things that are meaningful, the things that, that give life and satisfaction. I mean, we are... We are, we are faced with changes all the time. And I think this is very similar, and the really good news about this is because it's very similar to where we are in the book of John. You guys recall that we are working through the book of John. We started up just a few weeks ago back into the book of John. We're in John chapter 14, verse 1. You can turn there, and as you do, let me set it up for you. The very first half of the book of John is what's called the book of signs. These are signs to point to who Jesus was. We are in what's called the book of glory. It's, the, um, it's, the, it's where Jesus makes some real profound uh, uh, revelation of who he is, and then we see uh, fully who he is in the death and resurrection of Christ. We have what's called the Pharaoh discourse at the very beginning of the book of, the book of glory, Jesus is in the, the upper room with his disciples, and we saw the last couple weeks, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, put, makes, he models what it means to serve, and then he gives a new commandment, which is to love one another. That's where we were the last couple weeks. And the very end of last week's sermon, we talked about uh, Peter, who said, you know, Jesus mentioned he's leaving, he's going away, and he's like, We're gonna, I'm going to follow you, I'll die for you, and Jesus predicts that, um, that Peter will deny him, and we're going to that's, that's where we're going to launch into this message when we actually read the text. Let me read you a quote that I came across of Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse. This is a great quote by a, a really smart guy, so just it's worth the listen. Jesus, Jesus is preparing. Now remember, the Upper Room Discourse, he's preparing his disciples for the changes that are about to take place. He's preparing his disciples for his arrest, death, and resurrection, and then his ascension to the Father. So there's a whole lot of changes that Jesus is about to face, but he knows his disciples need to face life without him. Listen to this. It is Jesus who is heading for the agony of the cross. It is Jesus who is deeply troubled in heart and in spirit. Yet on this night of nights, when all times would have been appropriate for Jesus' followers to lend him emotional, spiritual support, Jesus is the one who's bringing comfort to those facing changes. I mentioned the changes that, are, that we face. All of us have some universal changes that we are doing together, but then we all have individual things. I believe there's a word for us here today because change can be frightening, can be paralyzing, and the pace of change can absolutely scare us. If you have your Bibles, read with me. John chapter 14, starting in verse one. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, let me, let me remind you, he had just said, Peter, you're gonna die for me? Die for me? You think you're going to do that? So then he says, you're going to deny me. 
Now, could you imagine? I know I said I was going to read. I lied. Could you imagine what the disciples must be thinking? What's going to happen next that Peter, of all people, is going to deny? Peter's like the inner circle, right? Peter's going to deny? He's the most, like, excited. He wants to, you know, we don't know this yet. He wants to cut people's ears off for Jesus. So he, he, he senses in the room Jesus. He knows what his disciples are thinking. He knows they're troubled in heart. So he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? It's a reasonable objection. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Jesus told them, told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, another interruption, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to, sh to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father, who lives in me and does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the works you have seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. You can, ask, you, could also, you can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I realize that's a lengthy passage. It's 14 uh, verses, and it's going to take the entire message to get through it, but don't worry. We're going to take it bit by bit here. First of all, we read, can I just make a confession here? Talking about changes, today the printer in the church office would not print double-sided for me uh, with the right orientation, so I am pre preaching out of this side of my notes, and that's a change, man. Would you pray for me? <laughs> Can I have the elders come? No, I'm just kidding. So verse 1, Jesus, Jesus senses the room and says, hey, steady your hearts, and then he gives them how. How are they going to steady their hearts? Trust in God, and trust also in me, the second half of that verse. Now, that word trust, you've heard me say a number of times, we, we translate it faith, we translate it belief, we translate it trust, it's, it's pistis. And, but the form that it takes here actually means it could, it actually could be what's called indicative. If you're a grammar person, this is your favorite part of the sermon, the indicative or, or the imperative. He's either saying trust or he's saying, hey, you trust in God and you trust in me. Steady your hearts. Or, or he could be saying, steady your hearts. You trust in God, so trust in me. Or he could be saying, Trust God and trust me. Either way, the point is there's a connection between the Father and the Son, and he's saying that you trust. I really believe that the, the, the trust God and trust also in me is, makes the most sense of the context. Um, some of the oldest Latin manuscripts write it in the imperative, but the point is he's saying, here's how you study your hearts. You trust. This is a theme in uh, John John chapter 5, verse 19, the son can do nothing by himself. You trust God, trust also me. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. And if you notice, because we read it, 
that same theme in John, introduced in John chapter 5 flows throughout this passage. If Jesus what the, does what the Father does, then he is to be trusted as one would trust the Father. Then verse 2 and 3, we see the reason. He explains how. It's through trust. Then he gives the reason. What's the reason that they should trust? What's the reason they should say their hearts? Because he's going to depart, and it's totally for their benefit. They're afraid that he's going to leave, but he's like, listen, I'm leaving for your benefit. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you, and then you will be where I am. We'll be together. This is huge for the disciples, who in a matter of hours will see him arrested, crucified. And before he's resurrected and appears to them, they've got to be, they've got to be thinking about this conversation. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come back and get you. But there's a trust that he's calling them to. And it's a trust that's centered on who he is and his relationship with the Father and subsequently his relationship with them. Um, just, this is for free. For those of us who grew up thinking that God had mansions for us, it doesn't say mansions here. It just says a dwelling place. There's room. There's enough room for you. You go ahead and have a mansion. I don't, I don't, I don't know that the point is that there's going to be this glorious mansion. I think the point is we're going to be in the glorious presence of Jesus. He's coming back and bringing us so we will be where he is. And if he wants to give me a bunk bed to be where he is, I'm taking it. As long as I could bunk bed with her. I mean, like, okay, never mind. Wow. That, you're special. Jesus is not going to fluff the pill. You know what? And here's the thing. We think sometimes, and I did when I, when I read this passage or I came across this passage, I'm going to go prepare a place for you like, like, Jesus left, like, 2,000 years ago to prepare heaven for me. Like, how, many, how much fluffing of the pillows is he going to do before he comes back and gets us? No, he prepares a place for us by the cross and the resurrection. Then verse... All right. And then in verse 4, he says, and you know the way. Now, this confuses the disciples. Wait a minute. Because they're not... They're not I mean, this has been a theme throughout all of John. Jesus speaks, and there's like layers, like onions, like Shrek or whatever, that it's like he's saying something, but he's meaning a couple other things, right? So he says, you know the way, and they're not catching it. They're like, we don't know the way. So Thomas interrupts. How can we possibly know the way? We don't even know the destination. And if I don't know where the destination is, I can't possibly know the way to that unknown destination. Totally makes sense. I agree. I might have jumped in there with Thomas and been like, word, or yeah, or Second, I don't know. Makes sense. You can't fault Thomas for interrupting. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, Jesus obviously means you know the way because you know me. We read that on this side of Calvary. We read that on 2,000 years looking back. But, but to those disciples, in the midst of concern about Jesus' departure, what's going to happen to this movement that we've been part of, Thomas interrupts. And then Jesus says, and this is the heart of this message, even though we're going to work through this whole entire passage, this is the heart of the passage. Let me read verses 6 and 7 for you. I mean, I, I really honestly could have preached this in two sermons, but then we would be in the book of John until 2050. So uh, we're taking in a big chunk right here. Verse 6 and 7, I am the way. 
Jesus, we don't know the way because we don't know the destination. How can we know the way? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And if you had really known me, you would know who the Father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Once again, there's that language of the relationship between he and the Father. Jesus does not rebuke Thomas. Instead, he tells them the way. I am the way, is what he says. Now, Jesus has revealed a lot of stuff about himself in the book of John. We've looked through it a number of times. But this is perhaps the greatest revelation he gives of himself in the Gospel of John. I want you to notice a few things, and we'll talk more about this in a, in, in a moment, but he doesn't say, I show the way. Buddha was known as the way shower. He doesn't say, I teach the truth. People give Muhammad, the, he's the teacher of truth, right? Those are the titles. He doesn't say, I give life. No, he says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. And we're going to break that down and talk about what that means for our life here in a moment. But I want to work through this passage still. He doesn't simply say he's the way shower, the truth teller, or the life giver. But he is the way, the truth, and the life. Later, John writes this. Same author. First John, his first letter. He wrote the gospel, and then he writes letters. First John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Whoever has a son has life, and whoever does not have God's son does not have life. For the disciples, trying to figure out what life has next, he's saying, you have me. You have me. I am the way forward. Then he says, he goes on in this passage talking about, you know, you know the Father because you know me. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Once again, that language of connection, which we've seen all throughout John. I, I got to be honest with you. I, I like to craft these like memorable, portable, rememberable phrases as like the big idea of a passage. But since we just looked at perhaps Jesus' greatest revelation of self in the book of John, I thought it would be inappropriate to create something new. So if you get nothing else today, if there's only one thing you remember and you probably should have memorized this as a child in Sunday school if you grew up in church. Let it be this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. See, this is a call to relationship. They want to know what's next. They want to know what to make of life, what's going to happen. But he's saying, I'm calling you to relationship. You worried disciples, steady your heart. I'm going away, but I'm coming back for you. And you know where I'm going. You know the way because you know me. That's relationship. He's not saying, I'm going to show you and reveal to you the way. I'm going to give you a roadmap, directions to navigate for yourself. He's saying, be in a relationship with me, which, is, which we know from the, the, the next passage is the promise of the Holy Spirit, which will be in next week. And then the passage after that, the, the vine and the branches, abide in me. How can we abide in you? I don't want to preach next, like two sermons from now, but how can we abide in you, Jesus, if, if you're not here? But yet he calls them to relationship. The way forward is relationship with him. In verses 9 through 11, well, actually, in verse 8, we see that Philip interrupts. Now it's Philip's turn. Because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip's like, oh, just show us the Father. Then we will be satisfied. All of this worry and angst. But if we just see the Father, we'll be satisfied. And Jesus responds, I don't know how you read Jesus. I think sometimes we read Jesus like, like the movie Jesus. Um, 
have I been with you all this time? I, I, I don't know if he's like, man, have I been with you? No, he doesn't like that either. Either way, I read Jesus sometimes, and he's like, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I just said that, and I'm saying it again. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe? Here we go. This is repeated twice here. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me and does his work through me. And then in verse 11, he says, Believe, believe when I say that I am in the Father, and he is in me. Once again, if he's calling us to relationship, he's also identifying very, very closely. We're not going to talk about the Trinity here. We are Trinitarians, just to let you know. But we have a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. There is that connection, the creator of the universe, the one who has ordered your steps from birth to eternity. And if he's ordered your steps from birth to eternity, he's got your steps and everything in between, including today. The call is to relationship with the one who has your steps ordered today. He says, believe me when I say this in verse 11, the last half of verse 11, or at least believe because of the work that you've seen me. Now, the work, I mean, there's an idea when, when you read it, I know you're thinking like, we're thinking of the miracles, like the miracles prove it. The miracles themselves don't necessarily prove it, but in the context of John, these are signs that do point to who Jesus is and God at work through him. Signs that say that he is indeed in the Father and the Father is in him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's going to be where we get to our application points. That's going to be where we, we're going to sit here for a moment and kind of break down that verse really slowly. Because I, there's three things I'd like to do. I'd like to talk about each of those elements. First of all, what is it, if it's true that he's the way, the truth, and life, it is true that we face changes and challenges in the unknown, and he's calling us to relationship, what does that mean? It means, first of all, lean into relationship with the one who is the way. If you're not a Christian here today, let that be the only thing you hear. Jesus is the way, not a way, but the way. He follows that verse with, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus alone is the gatekeeper. There is no other way to God but him. This is why we are gathered in this place, those of us who are Christians. We believe Jesus is the way. If you're not Christian, I want you to know the message of the gospel is this. The message of the gospel, gospel meaning good news of Jesus is this, that we are born separated. We are born into sin. We don't have the right standing. We don't have the right relationship and we, with God, and we can't do anything about it. We can't live righteously enough to become right with God. We can't restore our relationship that's been broken because of sin. We can't pay the penalty that we deserve because of sin. So Jesus lives a life that we could not live, and he dies a death that in our place, the penalty for our sin to give us right standing. We call it imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, if you are a believer and you put your hope in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Amen. I'm glad he doesn't see my, my lack of righteousness or my attempts at being righteous. 
He sees Christ's righteousness, and he has reconciled us, put us in right relationship. That's leading to the way. But it's not just for the non-Christians in the room. I, I recognize we probably outnumber you if you're non-Christian, but for the Christians, leaning into the one who is the way means this. It's a reminder to us because you know what happens? We have a tendency as Christians to start off by grace. We have a tendency as Christians to say, I'm taking this free gift of God, and slowly, somehow, we stray away and we make it about earning it and deserving it. The truth of the matter is God does come and transforms us, and we become better at being whatever. And we don't necessarily look like we used to look, and we start to think very subtly, I deserve this. It was a gift, but I deserve it. I'm holding on to it because I'm earning it. Jesus is the way. If you're trying to be accepted through moral living, good deeds, avoiding the big obvious sins, attending church, giving to the needy, even praying and reading your Bible, even doing ministry, if those things are done in an effort to be right, to be accepted with God, then you have missed the gatekeeper. You have missed the gate completely. There is no access to God. There is no acceptance from God outside of Jesus and the cross. If you're trusting for something other than, if you're trusting in something or someone other than the work of Jesus on the cross, then you're missing it. Let that be a reminder to us. You like to hear me say that we are grace amnesiacs. We forgot the grace that we've received and the grace that we require every day. Second thing is lead into the relationship with the one who is the truth. See, Jesus doesn't say here that he simply knows the truth or he, he's the truth teller, he tells the truth. No, he says he is the truth. That means that things that are contrary or outside of him are a lie. The things that you pursue to define your life, your love, your happiness, outside of Jesus, those things are a lie. For a moment, maybe you'll feel the love, life, or happiness. But Jesus Christ is the one who satisfies our longings and desires. See, if you define your worth or your value or your fulfillment on anything outside, now there are things that are fulfilling. There are things that are, I mean, there are, if you just, what I'm trying to say, you can't define your life on those things. If something or someone else other than Jesus is bringing worth or value or fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment, then it's a lie. Ultimately, that's Jesus' place. He calls us to relationship with him. The second thing is this, lean into, or the third thing, lead into relationship with the one who is the life. Somewhat related, Jesus makes the claim that he's the life here, and that's, after all, what we're all in pursuit of. I'm trying to figure out and navigate life in the place that God has placed me, trying to help my daughter figure out life and where God may be sending her. I hope that there's happiness and fulfillment and love. 
But at the same time, if we are pursuing life at its fullest, and Jesus says he is the life, then life at the fullest is in relationship with him. The things that we pursue to define life, the things that we pursue that we would say give life fun, entertainment, nothing wrong with these things, just when these things become ultimate things. Education, comfort, status, security, you name it, we pursue it. Once again, nothing wrong with those things. But when they take the place of where God is, where Jesus is, the one who is the life, then we're in trouble. Those things are fleeting and they're temporal. And so really they can't be classified as life. They could just be classified as a part of life, a season of life, a moment of life. But Jesus is the life. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3. For you died to this life. If you're a Christian, you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. I want to end this message by talking about the very end of this passage we just read. That's the big idea. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But let me, let me just address the rest of this thing because I think this, the rest of this thing will lead us into, we're going to receive communion here in a moment. There's elements as you walked in, hopefully you received it. Um, you can stand up and get one now if you like, but we didn't finish the passage, Jerome. Take a look at this, verse 12. Now, he just said, if, believe me when I say this. I'm, I'm in the Father. He's in me. And if you don't believe that, believe the work. And then it was almost like he said, oh, speaking of work, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. Those who believe in him will do the same work and even greater work. Now, depending on the tradition you grew up in, some of you are like, boom, it's miracles. We're not just walking on water, we're skating on water. I mean, you know, like whatever is greater than what Jesus did. He fed 5,000, we're feeding 5,001, and we're, we're, he raised someone from the dead after four days, we're doing it in four and a half. Like that's some of our go-to. Like, and then we're like, but I don't really think we're doing that. What does he mean by greater? Now, there are some people on the other side of the spectrum who are like, listen, when he says greater, they believe like miracles don't exist anymore. They're not for today. They would say, oh, he's talking about greater acts of humility like he washed the disciples' feet. Look at the context. I'm not making fun of those people. I love those people, but I don't agree with them. They're saying greater acts of love, greater, greater proclamation. Look at the church age. I say, yes, it's all of those things. I just want to be careful with the miracles thing, though, because sometimes we make it about us that I, we are going to do greater than Jesus. But if you recognize what he says in verse 10, the father who lives in me does the work through me. He calls us to relationship with him and then he works through us like the father works through him and the relationship he has with him. Don't believe me that this thing's about relationship. Read the next chapter. It's about relationship. Greater works, I believe, is for his followers, for his disciples at first and for the, the, the church age that follows is we do greater works because we do it in age of clarity. We do it in, in, in the power of the spirit. See, Jesus' ministry, his work, the miracles, the teaching, it was done in a, in, in a time where it wasn't even really clear who he was. 
Even the disciples, his closest friends, didn't get it. His work couldn't fully be accomplished because he had not yet died and rose again. But we stand on this side of the resurrection proclaiming who he is. That's greater work. We do it in an age of clarity, and we do it by the power of the Spirit, which he promises in the very next chapter, which we'll look at next week. We proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done. I don't know about you, but man, when I look at the unknown, when I look at how am I going to navigate, and Jesus says, I am the way. Lean into relationship with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. When I, when I think about my own life and how I'm supposed to navigate, and then I think about the answer that Jesus gives, then I think, well, that just flows right into how Jesus works through us. He called us to him, but he's gonna work through us. In verse 13 and 14, he says, ask and I'll do, I'll do it. He's the one who's doing the work. You could ask, ask in my name, not, 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 I confess too much as a pastor, I realize that. But as a kid, I, I kind of viewed in Jesus' name as like the magic potion incantation or whatever, hocus pocus, I don't know, whatever. It was like, if I say it in Jesus' name, then he's stuck having to do it. I'm gonna be a major league baseball player in Jesus' name. No, in Jesus' name means in line with God's will. It's not a magic phrase. It's not expectorant petroleum or whatever that thing is um, that you say. It's, in line with his will, in the name of Jesus, I will do the work. I will do the work so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. May we, in the midst of, of the unknown, of the things that frighten us, the things that, that, that we're walking into, that, walk, that we never asked to walk through, that are just part of life, whatever, a changing world, or changing home, may we bring glory to the Father. See, there's a contrast between Jesus' work and our work. It's not the quantity or the quality or the spectacularness because Jesus is doing the work. He did the work in the flesh and he said, greater works you'll do because I'm doing it through you. May we be those who God works through. Because we are called to be in relationship with him in the days we're walking through. At this time, we're going to receive communion, and I... Uh, When I think about this message and I think about the one who is the way, the one who, whose ministry is fully revealed, not even while he's in the flesh, but death and resurrection, that we get to proclaim the truth of the good news of Jesus, him working through us. It's this very message that we proclaim, but it's this message that we take time in this moment to remember. This whole passage is relationship.
This, he's saying, I'm leaving. I'm preparing you for my departure. But guess what? I'm preparing you for a relationship with me. The promise of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know. When we receive communion, I know sometimes we can see it from a very doctrinal standpoint. Well, this is the science of how we can be made right with God. But I read in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, the words of Jesus in the upper room, the very place where we're at in our text in John. But this is Paul looking at his disciples. What greater relationship? Let me read it to you. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you have your communion element, we're gonna receive the bread at this time. Um, I would encourage you just to take the, the clear foil off and grab the little wafer. And then in a moment, we will receive the cup together. I also recommend highly turning it away from you and splashing your neighbor and not yourself. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to walk in relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The one who looked at his followers, and we are followers today, he looked at his followers in that upper room and said, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm calling you to relationship with me. That's how you move forward. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We receive this, Lord, and we remember the, the broken body of Jesus, the one who ultimately made it possible for us to have relationship, to relationship restored, to have right standing, to have right relationship. Thank you for the broken body of Jesus who took the penalty in our place. In Jesus' name, would you eat the bread with me? I don't know about you, I know this is a holy and reverent moment, but all this little rapper stuff sounds like, like I'm in the poetry thing and everyone's like snapping like that. It's, but I'm, I'm waiting for the sound to stop before I move forward. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we hold this cup in our hand to remember the, the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We, we take it to remember and just as Paul says, we take it to announce the good news of Jesus. 
We sang a song as we close out our singing time today about what can wash away our sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, for moving through life really, really quickly. Help us to take this moment to pause and to ponder just how good you have been to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you receive the cup with me?